Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I have a departure from the norm. I have as my guest, Ted Landgraf, who is the founder of Above the Standard. And you'll see why this is a departure from my norm. Ted, welcome. Good morning. Great to have, be on this call today and this, uh, this show. Thank you, Marcus. Excellent. My pleasure. Ted, would you mind giving 60 seconds on your background and a little description of what ATS does? Absolutely. Entrepreneur at heart, went door to door when I was eight years old, helping people, serving people. 15, I had five employees, landscaping business, met the COO of one of the largest banks when we were doing a seven-week job. Fell in love with contracts, a written word, and uh, realized that's what I wanted to do. I realized that what you say and what you write and what you agree to can affect your life, good or bad. So that led us into really developing this company as a sole proprietorship, fell in my face, fell many times, many gray hairs early on. But I learned how to really not beat people up, but team with people and build relationships that are compliant, that are right, that are proper, and are sustainable. So this took us on a journey to develop above the standards. So that was a sole proprietorship, Compass Northwest, and then above the standard. I've been doing this uh, type of cost reduction and profit increase for 43 years and have saved tens and tens of billions of dollars for small to very large organizations, most of it all performance-based. So that, that's a little skip it about myself and our company. Excellent. So as you know, historically, I've tended to be very rude about purchasing and procurement. But as I got older, I've got a little bit wiser. So, Ted, first of all, what I'd like to do is explore how the relationship between purchasing, the CFO and the board has changed under COVID. That's a great question. It's changed drastically. First off, we got to realize, Marcus, that most CFOs, CEOs, the board don't understand what purchasing is. They think it's just doing purchase requisitions and purchase orders. But in reality, purchasing procurement it's all about communications. It's all about team people. It's all about relationships. It's about compliance. It's about information. It's about being the hub of what we call the middle of that wheel, if you can imagine that, where the hub is the information center to be able to develop compliant, sustainable relationships that not only help reduce costs, but increase profits for the long term. And so with COVID, what's happened is the supply chain has broken, and it's always been broken. 81% of all companies in the United States, and it's worse worldwide, are under the risk of supply chain. So if if a uh, something happens, like if you can imagine 2011 when the earthquake hit Japan, and the earthquake caused all those problems, that cost consumers all over the world over a trillion dollars. Just that one incident. And companies were not prepared for that supply chain disruption. You can look at Ericsson and Nokia, what happened when plant burnt down in Arizona, and that's where they got most of the chips years ago. One company was prepared in their procurement department, understood what it was about. They had backups, they had relationships. Within three days, they were manufacturing again with all of their backup plans. Their company almost went bankrupt, lost hundreds of millions of dollars. So procurement isn't just um, about 
you know, beating people up, beating suppliers up, getting the best deal you can. It's about sustainability. It's about strategy. It's about communications. It's about compliance. It's about the supply chain and how that flows through information, you know, with, with goods and, and services and anything where money is spent in a company. So what's happening with companies worldwide with COVID, and it's probably going to be this way ongoing for this generation, I would predict in the next 20 to 40 years at a minimum, because we're going to see other diseases, plagues, all kinds of things. It means that you're going to have to be nimble. You're going to have to be able to work from home. You're going to have to be able to scale what we call a global team within the structure of no structure, but yet there's a structure. So you have to have a centralized system, but be decentralized at the same time. So with all the natural disasters that are happening that are coming, plagues, diseases, communications, and also another problem is people think technology fixes problems. They don't. It's fixing people in the trenches and the human process and then wrapping that technology around that specific environment. Because each company is different, but there are certain processes that we have found and developed over the decades that we know applies to every company. And we customize that to get people communicating, to build that team, because that's what procurement does. You build teams within shared services, within finance, IT, HR, the executive space, and everybody involved in any product or service within that situation. So then instead of being reactive, you become proactive and being able to get what you need at a great price within a sustainable situation with best value. And we could go on there for hours, but best value is something that most companies don't understand about at all. And you have to align the procurement department, the shared services in every department with mission and vision and goals of where that company's going. And that means best value. And that flows down to every single supplier, partner, strategic partner, whatever you want to call it, any relationship that fits those parameters. So in a nutshell, everything's changed. And so we've been working virtually since 1989. We're pioneers in the industry. And so we know how to do things. We know how to get things done. We don't manage by hourly. We do it by project to get the best value, highest quality, and the quickest returns for our clients. That means cash flow and the 98% plus of all of our engaged clients over 43 years. Let me ask you this, because that was very insightful. Let, Let me ask you this. As sellers, historically, there's been a lot of conflict and a lot of tension between vendors and purchasers. And often there is an adversarial relationship or expectation between the two. Now, how can vendors best ensure that they are seen as partners rather than peddlers? That is a great question. And that's another three-day training that we do about setting up partners. So basically, how do you set up partnerships? Instead of just beating up suppliers, partners, where it's a adversarial type of situation. First off, you have to define what it is that you're trying to accomplish. And if we look at the last 60 years of purchasing and procurement, It's to beat people up and get the lowest price. That does not work like you were just saying. You have to understand that it's not even technology because if we do 
the electronic e-commerce type of bidding processes, you wipe out 87% of the competition. Because when you send out an RFP for a certain product or service that you desire, and you're specifying in an RFP what you want, and you're doing it electronically, most of the people who are going to answer that are salespeople, are people that are going to design that proposal back to you to meet that need. So you have to do a combination of real world and, and technology. And before you do that, you have to define, again, what your best value is. What is your best value? Well, it's warranty. It's being able to be up and running 365 days a year. It's being able to have green. It's being able to have best price. It doesn't mean lowest cost. It means strategy where you're aligning with the supplier that's going to be not only be geographical with your clients, but also with your mission, with your vision. Well, what it is you're trying to accomplish. You may be an organization where you give 10% away to help orphanages around the world. So what are you going to do with that? You want to align with people, suppliers, partner salespeople, or those people who are going to provide that product and service. It's going to align with that. And the problem with most organizations and procurement departments, they don't have a mission. They don't have a vision. They don't have a plan in the procurement department to be proactive. So if you look at, for example, in the US, 10 to 50 million gross revenues per year, you'll see that 97% plus of all organizations in the US fitting those gross revenues do not have a purchasing manager and they're not doing any negotiations at all. And the numbers get even worse worldwide. So it's about retraining your vision and mission. It's about getting the executive space behind you, taking care of that first, and then going out with your plan, with your best value, mission, and vision, and saying, here's the kind of partners we want. Here are the kind of suppliers. Here are the kind of salespeople we want working with us that are going to meet our need, but we're going to help them too. We're going to grow together in a compliant situation having best value, but also being able to work for the long-term that is profitable for all. So most procurement purchasing, most finance, most executive boards, and the executive space are broken. And they don't understand what procurement's really supposed to be all about. So it's retraining. First off, saying, are you willing to do this? Are you behind this? And then when you get that, you start with one little project. And you go very simple. That's how we always do it. One little area to show and tell. You always gain trust through your performance. And that's what you do. So when we go in, we find 99% of the time, start with low-hanging fruit, something really simple. Get a quick win. And they go, aha, that's cool. Boy, we just made some more profits. And then you get them on the choo-choo train, get them on board. And then you start to work as a team. You do the next project that builds more trust and then more, more, more. And then people begin to assimilate more communication. What begins to happen too is a fear-based management because you and I, Marcus, know that most companies are fear-based. That starts to eliminate more communication, starts to happen, more ideas. That plan begins to go forth in a mission and vision and best value and understanding what people are really about, your most valuable asset than ideas. So it isn't just that hard cost you reduce, soft cost, cost avoidance. It's about productivity. 
And that changes the whole game space from just doing those procurement cost reductions. Very interesting. Okay, so what I see in most organizations is there are centers of dissatisfaction, frustrations that occur in different departments, different geographies, and all of these problems are lobbed over the fence to procurement. And I think the ones that have that very limited vision will tend to go out and look for suppliers to solve those problems. The more forward-thinking purchasing professionals look at the patterns and they look at um, how these problems are being created uh, at a causal level um, instead of at a symptomatic level. And the net result of that is that they can solve a number of problems in parallel uh, if they are partnering with the right vendors, they're having the right conversations, and they're engaging with their own people, um, and they're not operating from um, you know, this ivory tower or a silo. Why is it uh, still that so few organizations think like that both on the buying side and the sell side. And what advice would you give leadership on both sides in order to try and bridge that gap? Because if I see A, B, C, D, E, F, and G happening within an organization, that can tell me that with these, this bundle of solutions, I can solve all of them. Instead of maybe having to bring in 20 different vendors, I can have three and we can solve the whole thing maybe at premium pricing, uh, but significantly lower cost and uh, a much higher return. So what are your thoughts on that? Great input. I always like to story tell. So I'll start with, start with this story. Uh, $69 billion company there. They're in oil and gas. They're mining. They're, they do quarries. They do construction. Huge organization in over 100 countries. We started fear-based management. They had problems. They bought many companies. And in merger and acquisitions, by the way, <laughs> I'm just going to get right straight to the point. Most of it has hurt people. People lost jobs. Companies have gone under. And a few people got rich over 50, last 50 years. So when you, when you buy a bunch of companies, there's no sustainability. Nobody's managing the best practices. Nobody is infiltrating that new company to say, here's our environment. It's a it's a, a quite a hoop show, if I could say that in most cases. And so the problem is you create fear-based, you create decentralization of lack of communications, you create discrepancies, you create fraud, all kinds of things. Procurement fraud is the second biggest crime in the world. Trillions are lost every year. Why? Really? Because it's more than PRs and POs. Number one is obviously finance, you know, stealing cash or you know that type of thing. But procurement fraud is the biggest problem. We designed a um, what we call a contractor person system review for the Department of Labor, the U.S. government, and that became very much used because we simplified the methodologies. If you look at federal acquisition regulation at that time, it's three thousand pages in length, along with agency PRHs and PEGs and all kinds of things. So people didn't know what the heck they were doing. It was just a bunch of written stuff. So you have to, first off, you have to simplify things. That's the most important thing. You have to make it systematic 
so that anybody can follow that system pretty much. Like McDonald's, you have to create the system. So what is it you're trying to accomplish, number one? Then you create a system around that. Then you bring in the people to use that system. But you have to show them how to do it. Because if you don't know what you don't know what you don't know, Marcus, then you don't know it. You have to show and tell and teach people. And so when you do that, you get one person in the, in the organization, you're doing it. Then you get two and you get three and you start to have meetings. And if you really boil it down to the basic structure, lack of communication, misunderstandings or no communication is 74% of all organizational problems worldwide. So procurement is a part of communication. Again, that central hub, if you can imagine that, if you're looking at a picture. So if we're going to look at what you were just asking about why people don't know. Well, first off, the last 50 plus years, how have people been taught in our colleges and universities all over the world to reduce costs? And how have executives been taught to fire people, lay people off? That's the best way. No, it's not. We've been in many situations where the cash flow was terrible. They were going to have to lay people off. And we did two projects, created that cash flow immediately, kept those people and grew the company. Because they didn't know what they didn't know until you showed it to them. So you have to show and tell. And then again, they have to allow you to, because some companies won't. We look at some clients and say, nope, we're not going to get involved because they really don't care. All they are is about the money and they're never going to care about their people. So we walk away from those types of clients. So here's a real story. Um, real story. We went into this company. They um, had six people go to jail. They had some problems the executive side. They were making money hand over fist because at the time, you know, 20 years ago, you know, mining quarries, uh, rock, aggregate, all of that was very profitable. So you could still, you know, still make a lot of money and still have major problems. So things caught up to them at state, federal, international level. And we went in and we were up against what we call regional territories. And a, and a lot of companies are designed, well, not a lot, but some, where the regional presidents make money if they make more profit in the region. That's good and bad. You have to have a holistic approach, too, like you just said a little bit ago, siloed. So yeah. when we do true procurement, it becomes holistic. You begin to involve all kinds of departments. You become proactive as you storytell. They go, look what they just did in the ID department. They saved them a million dollars and they didn't have to spend anything. It was all performance driven. Oh my goodness. And they start talking, start talking. How did that happen? And then you go over to HR and you start working with them. And then all of a sudden IT and HR is working together. And that's what we did with this one client. We storytell. We went in and did an office supply bid in one of the regions. And we got the buyer involved, the procurement manager and the regional president. And we got... The logistics involved, we created a team to build that trust. And then in three months, we went in out of about 23 suppliers are buying from off supplies. And we brought it down to one and saved 37%. And we shared in that savings. They were excited. Then we storytelled all over into the different regions. And then we solidified that whole off supply bid across the United States and Canada. And we ended up reducing costs, $27.3 million, increased it's a 24-hour delivery guaranteed in most places, centralized buying only, all automated on the e-commerce system. And mind you, this is back in 2004, a long time ago. And then we created best value. We created 
we did the bid where we gathered all the data from their suppliers. Because you're going to find in most cases, your finance department doesn't have the needed information. And if they do, it's going to take you thousands of hours to get it. So we built an entire off-supply list, unit of measure to the brand name, do everything down to the cost. It was over 6,000 items, put that out to bid, and we solidified it down to one. 27.3 million save, increased the best value. People got to see what we were doing. And then we went out and did 51 other projects over 23 months. We reduced our cost $252 million just in the U.S. in less than two years with three of our people. We had over 300 people full-time in their procurement department. Not that we're better than anybody. But that's kind of how it flows. Okay. So, again, I think so many organizations say we haven't got any money. But the reality is they're spending it or they're choosing to spend it on something else. And often because they don't have joined up thinking, because they're not working in concert, there is no effective orchestration or choreography to how the organization works. They're operating in silos. There is massive inefficiency. 35 years in sales has taught me this. They always have the money. More often than not, they're choosing to spend it on something else or they're wasting it in other parts of the business. And what I'm hearing here is that's another 200 million that could have been spent, invested, reinvested in the business Some of it could have gone to shareholders and profits would have gone up and the share price would have been positively affected. But it it strikes me that when salespeople are speaking to purchasing and uh, to all the influencers within a buying committee, what they should be looking at is what can we replace? Where can we drive efficiency? Where can we drive savings in order that you don't have to have six password management systems and VPNs and all of that kind of stuff. If you replace all of those with one password-free solution, for example, then you don't need all of those technologies. So you eliminate the maintenance, you eliminate the annual service costs, you eliminate all the licensing, and you free up time at the help desk. And this is where I see so many vendors get it wrong, because they go in and they peddle product. Um, No one in the history of humanity, has ever woken up and said, you know what I really want? I want an ERP system, or I want a LAN. They're looking for outcomes. And I think it's incumbent on salespeople to be more business savvy and understand how all the different moving parts in their customers and their prospects work together or work against each other. Why is it? Because you're on the, the other side of the fence. Why is it that you see so many vendors fail to train their salespeople to understand the mechanics of how a business works? That's a great question. It could be multiple reasons. First off, the salespeople don't understand what procurement does or should do. And procurement doesn't understand what salespeople should do. So the, it's, it's really about re-educating both of those folks, the sales and procurement, to understand how they need to, and it doesn't mean you're doing away with compliance or best practice or doing things uh, from a process standpoint that's done correctly and legally. What it means is you're going to bring communications to the table. 
And it means you're looking at procurement not as your adversary or procurement's not looking at sales as the adversary. You're looking at, we need each other to create the outcomes together, to win together. So that's number one. Number two, again, the executive space in a lot of cases are not behind procurement. They don't understand what procurement should do. And so you said a little bit ago, also siloed. What a lot of companies do is they silo their departments. And that's, that's bad. You need to, yes, each department has their function, but you also have to bring those departments together to be one team. So in procurement, true procurement practice will bring those departments together through our processes, a true procurement process where it will cause communication. It will involve people as a team. It'll say, hey, HR, you're important. Hey, sales, you're important. IT, you're important, et cetera, in all the departments. And then what it does is it makes everything transparent because if you look at a lot of companies, it's a protective type of thing where the department head, the director head, division head, whatever you want to say, is more on the protective basis. I'm protecting my territory here. Don't, don't mess with me. So in a true procurement process in education, as you not only say it, design it, but do it, and you go in there and show and tell, because people learn differently. Some people learn by hearing. Some people learn by seeing. Some people learn by doing. A lot of people learn by all of those functions. So it's really important to have somebody come in and, and really show and tell from the outside and say, here's what's going on. We're not here to beat you up. We're here to be your advocate. We're here to make a difference and show you something that's different. Yes, it's going to be some work for a period of time, but when you get it set up this way, this system will run itself with you managing that system. And now each department head, when they see procurement come, they're not going, where's my stuff? You're now educating, you're training, you're proactive, ideas are flowing. And so it's a re-education process, showing and telling. It's showing something that has been broken and saying, we have a different way, but they have to be willing to. So there's a lot of situations. There's history of people being taught that way. There's siloed, like you talked about, lack of communications, fear-based management, and think people thinking technology is going to fix your problem. It's not. It never will. Great. It's going to okay. be the human process. Great technology badly applied is worse than having no technology in my experience. <laughs> I, I see this all the time. You, I see all these companies right. with uh, this technology spaghetti when it comes to marketing and sales enablement technologies. And they throw all this money at technology. They've dehumanized the marketing and the sales process. So they're not really spending any time being relevant. What they're doing is, and they're, they're so focused on measurement of meaningless KPIs that don't help the business go forward. And I think this um, points to something else, which we haven't yet talked about, which is a lack of clarity at the top. I think ambiguity is the mother of all bars. Ambiguity at the top leads to politics at the bottom. And I think this then speaks to this next question, which is when you've seen leadership teams with absolute clarity around their values, their mission, and their purpose. How different? Do, how differently do they perform to organizations where the leadership lacks that clarity? A great question. Night and day. <laughs> it's 
it creates an environment where people are assured. And when you're assured and you feel you know, like there's a trust or you feel safe, that's the key word. If you feel safe, you're not now trying to hide your behind, like somebody's out to get me, number one. Fear-based management goes away. Communications increase in subtle ways. Meetings are not just meetings that come together. There's get things done real time. There's accountability. There's transparency. Everybody's on the hook, including leadership. That means that they have KPIs as well that are meaningful. And it's everybody's a team. Yes, there's always a leader and you're responsible for X, Y, Z. But now that team begins to grow and ideas flourish. So it increases, like I was giving an example earlier about the one client we had. We saw that cost reduction, like in the mines, by 31%, but we saw productivity go up 34% as well. So it isn't just in the bottom line. It increases those profits and it's directly correlated to leadership. It's directly correlated. And yes, you can bring change from the bottom up. It's difficult. We've done that before and it takes a couple of years. <laughs> it can happen. And we've done that for some of our clients where the leadership did not want that change, but we started and the bottom line managers and frontline people started working with them and training and re-education and bringing people together. Because what happens is people then have to become productive. They have to then care. They have to then participate. And if they don't want to do that, they're weeded out. And then only they're only attracting the old same birds of a feather flock together. That becomes the norm. And that what creates a sustainable, excellent, awesome company where people want to come to work at and want to stay. And that's what we need more of. This isn't just about procurement. This is where we're at around the world. A lot of broken organizations is seriously need help. And if we're going to have something sustainable for the next generation, we better start getting better leadership. And a leader means, what does it mean? It means to influence. That's all it means. So how is that leader influencing? Is it for good, open, transparent, accountable, teamwork? Then you're going to see an organization grow and they may not be doing everything right, but they're going to figure it out. And then the people are going to become their most valuable asset. And so you'll have costs that are within the framework of what they need. And you'll have productivity growing all the time. And you'll have ideas flourishing in an environment. So th this ties together a number of the concepts that we've talked about so far. Um, there is a Russian proverb, which is uh, fish rots from the head down. Um, so the, the speed of the leader will determine the speed of the group. And the direction that leadership gives to the rest of the organization will dramatically impact what people say, what people do, what people remember, and uh, the culture of the organization, which is this is the way we do things around here versus policy, which tells us what not to do. And I think it also uh, touches on something else, which is really critical, that there is a dearth of good leadership without wanting to make this political. You've recently suffered um, what has been an embarrassment of an election. We did the same thing earlier on this year as well. The fact that with 70 million people our end and 340 million yours, you could, neither of us uh, could find two good candidates that we could put up, that's pretty damning in terms of where we are. 
And I think part of the problem here is that what we haven't done is created this apprenticeship to leadership. I think what you know the Peter principle tends to apply, and those who can climb the slippery pole and uh, play the political game can achieve it, or those who can get the highest level of visibility. But I think one of the areas that we really need to uh, consider very seriously is how do we home grow really good talent and career path them so that they stay? Because, I mean, I look at the turnover rates in companies and salespeople lasting less than a year, managers lasting around a year, uh, VPs of sales lasting 12 to 18 months. That suggests that there is a problem upstream in terms of the hiring and the recruiting and the onboarding. It suggests that there's lack of clarity and poor expectation setting and the demise of the apprenticeship and years learning your craft. That seems to have gone out of the window. Everyone's looking for a quick fix. And I don't think there are enough companies that really genuinely believe that people are their greatest asset. There are too many of them that uh, subscribe to the Dilbert cartoon. Dilbert goes in and speaks to the boss with the pointy hair. And uh, the boss says, you know, um, turns out people aren't our greatest asset. They come ninth after paperclips. And what I struggle with is why there is so little investment in real training, because most training doesn't work. I see this all the time. They fly someone in, they do a little bit of entertainment, there's a slight boost in morale for a, uh, a couple of weeks, and then performance either reverts back to where it was or backslides. You see people being punished for making mistakes instead of being coached, and coaching is something that is massively lacking. The number of uh, managers I've spoken to over the years say, well, how much coaching do do you do? And they say, well, you know, we don't really have time for that. I'm so busy. Well, of course you're bloody busy. You've got, because you're not coaching, you're suffering from upward delegation. Uh, You're becoming a bottleneck and you're punishing the people who you weren't clear with for not meeting your ambiguous expectation. This strikes me as a sense of madness. Absolutely. It's uh, the old adage that says, the truth shall set you free. Let's think for a moment. There's been many studies done, and I agree with this, that 44% of all human beings purposely lie to themselves. So again, it comes back to how people have been trained from you know, growing up to how the colleges and universities are. Are they engaging people, or is it all just memorizing things and taking a test? It's like you just said, apprenticeship. It's that skill. It's taking somebody under your wing and showing them everything you know. And that comes back again to systems. What is your system? So what are you storytelling in your company? What is your company about? From the top down, from the, from the down to the up, sideways, behind you, in front of you, what are you saying? What are you practicing? In other words, people are going to follow you and what you're doing. And the reality is if we look at, and I don't even want to go here, but I'm going to, we look at the wealth. There's more people getting wealthy than ever before in the history of mankind. And there's more control in a few people's hands than we've ever seen before in the history of mankind, I believe, from the numbers I've studied. And that's good if the people are going to lead justly and with goodness. But in most cases, that's not going to happen. 
And so we have to take it back. It's grassroots. You have to, you have to personally decide what am I going to invest in people today? And you're right about training. It's got to be continual, not just three days worth because human nature will still backslide like you so eloquently said into the old habits. You have to keep people on a structure, on a path for a period of time, I would say at least a year. And then once you do that, that habit will take over in the system and then that will continue on and you won't be able to stop it. Like the old choo-choo train, it starts really slow, but once it's going, it's going to be hard to stop quickly. And, and so you, you have to, you have to be willing to do that. You have to be willing to take the lead. You have to be willing to tell the truth. I remember doing something with our government and our government decided they didn't like what we did. And what saved us is our system. Every, we, our system says everything we do will be documented. And, and the old adage is, if it's not a folder, it never happened. So everything we practice from everything we do from efficiencies to procurement, to leadership, to training people, even when people join our company, we have a whole system and process. And is it perfect? No. We're always trying to make it better, but there's a system and a path. And you have to, you have to invest time and money and resources to build that team. And it isn't an I and team, it's together everyone achieves more. So you're going to learn as much from somebody you're coaching and training and mentoring as you are, you know, on the opposite side. So it's a, it's an investment that people are the most valuable period in the story and anything you do in life. As J.C. Penney said to my grandfather, Paul Reingraff, good friends while they were alive. Back in the 1930s, he said, Carl, the reason I succeeded is it's all about relationships in life. And that's what it boils down to. And so you, you've got to affect people's lives, whether it's procurement or it's business, or it's coaching, you're investing, whatever you're doing in business, you have to be almost like on a mission to affect people for truth and for good, help them to become the best person they're supposed to be. Well, you've touched on something there that's very close to my heart, um, that I think at the hiring stage, you need to understand what an individual's personal motivations are. And I don't believe that many managers really understand that at all, even when they've had them on their payroll for years. I spend a lot of time in uh, helping my clients to recruit historically. And now that I'm running sales teams, I'm spending a lot of time up front trying to understand the personal motivations of what drives an individual. And motivation is made up of their attitudes, their beliefs, and their values. That's what drives those. And if you don't understand an individual's motivation, then chances are you will have somebody who is probably quite high in competence, but they're not engaged. And there was a study of the S&P 500, and they looked at the difference in performance of companies that had highly engaged employees versus those who are only mildly engaged or actively disengaged. And the difference in performance was striking. Share price grew, I think, 326% higher compound year on year uh, between 2010 and 2016 for those with highly engaged employees. So for the C-suite, for the CFO, 
for the investors. That has to be a good driver. Um, secondly, uh, profit per employee was 430% higher than average. Revenue was 290% higher than average. Uh, productivity was 20% higher per employee. And turnover was 40% lower. And when you look at the cost of bad hires, the cost of replacement, and um, you, you should look at the research of a guy called Dr. Phil McGowan. He states that it takes 30 months for a business to recover when a salesperson leaves them. Now, I look at all these technology companies that are being driven into the ground by bad investors who are driving really terrible behaviors and bad management practices. And they're leaving the corpses of burnt out junior salespeople littered all over the battlefield because they're driving the wrong behavior. They're so focused on, uh, and you've touched on it before, the greedy exit. Instead of building rock solid businesses with fat, strong fundamentals, highly engaged employees and customers who buy from you five, 10, 15, 20 years down the line. So they're customers for life. And I think the emphasis and the focus on uh, for many sales organizations is being driven by quarterly reporting, by making the numbers so that they can look good for just a quarter. And we're up against, if we look at the global uh, macroeconomics picture, you know, we're up against the Chinese who operate on 100-year plans. The example I draw on here in terms of the difference in mentality, at the end of the Korean War, the American delegation negotiating the peace uh, rented three floors of the Hilton for three months. Uh, the Chinese contingency rented a five-bedroom house for three years. It was already a foregone conclusion what was going to happen uh, by the end of that negotiation because they were playing the long game. And one of the things that really puzzles me, I get it, you know, management by fear and all of that culture and so on, but why is it we don't have a longer-term view in terms of customers, in terms of employees, in terms of where we're trying to take our businesses? And is it, so, is it something that's to do with uh, the drive to go towards um, stock price? You know, I would have to say, well, number one, greed. Greed kills things, and it's not just financial, it's emotional, it's how long you last. Um, I, I, again, I, I look at examples. Walmart, their turnover rate is astronomical in the hundreds of percents per year, depending on location. They don't pay their people that well. They're trying to change that, They're trying to change the culture, but it's going to be a real difficult one. I look at a comparison, we did a study on Costco compared to Walmart. Costco has, I mean, they keep people for almost 20 years. They pay on average six to eight dollars more per hour, depending on position. They have better benefits, yet Costco is more profitable. And so it's a mindset. It's how you've been trained. It's once you're on this rat wheel, it, it's hard to get off. And that's what's happened, not just in America, but all over the world. This greed, like how much profit did I make today? And so it it educates a person and and really tarnishes a person on what a, 
okay, it's good to live this daily. Okay, what am I doing today? What are my steps and processes going to do to meet my lifelong goals? And we teach a series on goal setting and breaking it down from your lifelong to your decade, your five, one year, three months, and then to your monthly, weekly, and then your daily. You know, the old saying, the don't despise the daily little beginnings, important all the way if you're going to be successful in anything in life. But what what's happened is this greed, this sucking everything out of everything, like we're only making 23% of our member of plan being closed in this town on these coasts, a town of about 13,000, they employed like 3,000 people. They closed it down because they were only making like 27%. Ah, we're not making enough. This greed blindsides people. That's what it'll do. Greed is very inward. It doesn't look at anything. It doesn't look at the long term. So it's a culture. It's a training. It's a teaching. It's teaching people what real life's about. There is no overnight success. Success comes over the years doing daily, grinding, hardworking, relationship-building situations and sticking to it. Successful people in any walk of life ever. The number one thing that I've studied and that I've interviewed people with over the years, because I've written a book about it called Steps for Success, number one thing is perseverance. You don't ever, 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 ever quit. And so I believe that, again, it comes back to you have very wealthy people, and not all wealthy people are bad or are doing this, but a lot of wealthy people are doing this, where it's that bottom line. And if we're not getting this, you're fired or you're out of here. Instead of putting someone on a corrective action and giving them guidance, mentoring, here's what we need to do, they're they're quick just to get rid of that person or that team or that company. Green. You've touched on something really interesting because when Sam Walton was alive, if you were a store manager and your janitor left within six months of hiring, you were flown over to head office to sit out the headmaster's office and to explain why. You didn't do that more than once. So I'm interested to see that the culture has changed so much that retention of staff and uh, right hiring and the idea that it is the manager's responsibility to make sure that not only do they hire well, but they keep their staff. And to do that, they have to communicate. They have to have strong relationships. They have to listen. And in sales, I have uh, five items on a job description for a sales manager. And I, th- in all honesty, I think it uh, holds true for everyone else in management as well. You hire the best people, which means that recruitment must be a daily activity. You're always building the bench. And from a manager's perspective, building the bench is the equivalent of a salesperson prospecting for new customers. You've got to do a little and often. Then your job is to get the best out of them. So you have to set expectations clearly right from the outset. And you have to make sure there is alignment in terms of values, mission, purpose, beliefs, in terms of the people that you hire. Uh, You need to be clear about what is expected of them every day. You need to pre-onboard them, onboard them, train them and hold them to account. And there must be consequences. Again, something that many managers avoid. But the key, the superpower there is coaching. Make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day. 
That doesn't mean throwing money at buying the latest uh, new shiny bit of technology. Uh, the question I'm asking uh, everybody uh, when they're saying they want to invest in stuff is, what's the minimum level of technology you need in order to do your best work? Because again, I think the more you put technology in place, the more you dehumanize the whole process. And we are, after all, human beings. Then make sure that you help them clear roadblocks and protect them from acts of idiocy from above. And the fifth one, which I think is sadly lacking in many organizations, is manage inclusively. Make sure that your salespeople or whoever is reporting to you have a voice. And don't punish them for telling you the truth. In fact, encourage it and applaud it. And take ownership and responsibility. When they're giving you bad feedback about the company systems, the processes, your behavior, then take it like a grown-up and thank them for it. Don't punish them. Otherwise, they'll just shut up and you'll continue to suffer. And make sure when someone leaves that you do a proper exit interview and learn how to improve so that you can hire up. But I, I don't see that level of courage being out there in management and leadership. That does concern me because if you don't have that, then it's a nasty spiral to the bottom. Your thoughts? Absolutely. Let me, uh, you know, when you look at a good company like Costco, they do that. They reward people. They reward people for being open, being honest. When, when you allow a person to be a person, uh, you don't need tech, a lot of technology. You don't. If you have Microsoft Office, the internet, and a decent computer, and a, a phone line, you're good. It's all you need. We teach that in our company. You don't need all this hoopla stuff. We can show you how to use LinkedIn free version to build relationships and get clients. We have whole processes just for that because we've done it. So you have to figure it out first yourself in anything. When you figure it out, then you process it, systematize it, and go train other people with care, with a human heart, and with support, and building that trust. And when you communicate that, certainly some people are going to leave you. But those people who are going to be part of the team are going to stay. There's going to be more trust, more communications. I look at Amazon. Amazon has major high turnover. And because they don't practice that, they say they practice it. They say in their trainings and all this, here's what we do. But in reality, they don't because it's all about the bottom line buck. And it, like recruiters, I've worked with many recruiting organizations around the world with our clients. And it's really sad because they'll recruit somebody if they can make it to two year. Usually that person at corporate's moving on somewhere else. They're a rare person to last more than two years in one month. <laughs> and so, again, what you shared, totally in alignment and agreement. You've got to create the environment. You've got to lead by example. You've got to open that environment up for communications. There has to be consequences. You need to have a SOP for corrective action plan. It doesn't mean somebody's in trouble. It means you're trying to help them. You're trying to guide them to say, here's what we need. You need to reward those who are honest and truthful, who share the truth. And it means what is truth. So if the person's crooked at the top, they don't know what truth is. They're blinded by it. So you have to have, again, that leader who's going to create that environment in doing, saying, believing, and supporting it. So, Ted, we've come to the top of the hour. This has been really fascinating. Thank you so much. Help me understand I've thoroughly something. enjoyed it. Thank you. Help me understand something. If you look back 
uh, your history. What was your best mistake? <laughs> I, you know, that's a tough one because I would say many mistakes. <laughs> but my best, my best mistake was moving out of my parents' home when I was young and having to support myself at the age of 15 because I had to learn that it's not going to be anybody else that's going to help you get to where you're trying to go in life. It's about, it's up to you and the decisions you make. And what I learned from those, that mistake is you don't control what anybody else does. You don't control what happens to you. What you control is your attitude and what you're going to do to be proactive and what you're going to learn out of that. I would, I'd have to say it's my top. <laughs> Excellent. So if you had a golden ticket and you could go back in time to advise your idiot 23-year-old self, what one bit of advice would you have given young Ted that you know he would have probably have ignored but would have been valuable to him? To continue to believe in people, serve, and be careful of whom you bring into your inner circles of life. Absolutely. What are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? Oh, man. Life is moving fast. <laughs> I have lots of things to do and my time is less. So I maybe have 50 years left. So I have lots of things to help and accomplish and do. And I'm driven not by money, but by helping people become their very best version of life that they're supposed to be. And so I've got a lot of things still to do, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. If you were to recommend some form of content, either a book or you know, videos, uh, podcast audios that you believe can have a profound influence on someone's life and their ability to succeed and uh, meet their own potential. Uh, what would be the one that you would pick? Oh my gosh. Every person is different. Every person has a different background, different raising, different culture. The people are saying, so I'm going to kind of be generic here. History. History repeats itself on and on. It's like a, like a cyclone going forward. And so it's important that people understand history. And a lot of history has been rewritten the wrong way. And the truth wasn't told. So it's important to understand the history of your family, the history of generational curses and what to do about that, the history of your nation, wherever you live. I would have to say you need to create, have history and science and read books on things that you enjoy, like travel, people that you admire, people you meet, read some of their knowledge papers on business and philanthropic. Proverbs is a very good book. Excellent. My, mine for today would be How to Run Your Own Life by Ute Meininger. It's out of print. It'll probably cost you about a hundred bucks to get a secondhand copy. And Ute is J-U-T and Meininger is M-E-I-N-I-N-G-E-R. And it's all about transactional analysis, but looking at the uh, human condition through the eyes of a visiting Martian, really well worth a read. And uh, that, that speaks to what Ted was talking about here in terms of understanding those patterns of behavior that repeat themselves in terms of your family history. That can be really very powerful. Excellent. Ted, how can people get hold of you? Probably the best way is go to our website, AboveTheStandard.net, or email us at grow at AboveTheStandard.net. We do everything by appointment only, and uh, we love helping people, serving people, helping them to grow. Ted Landgraf, thank you. 
Thank you, Marcus. Been a pleasure today. You have a fantastic day and be well, my friend. Excellent. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this conversation insightful and inspiring, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with me, either because you're inspired or because you think you'd be a good guest or know someone who would be, then email me at marcus at laughs-last.com or connect with me on LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.